Good morning, my name is Katie. The Old Testament reading is found in Jonah 1, 1 through 3. The Lord's word came to Jonah, Amittai's son. Get up and go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their evil has come to my attention. So Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship headed for Tarshish. He paid the fare and went aboard to go with them away from the Lord. The word of the Lord. Hi, I'm Kay. The New Testament reading is found in Ephesians 2, 3 through 7. At one time, you were like those persons. All of you used to do whatever felt good and whatever you thought you wanted so that you were children headed for punishment, just like everyone else. However, God is rich in mercy. He brought us to life with Christ while we were dead as a result of those things that we did wrong. He did this because of the great love that he has for us. You are saved by God's grace. And God raised us up and seated us in the heavens with, with Christ Jesus. God did this to show future generations the greatness of his grace by the goodness that God has shown us in Christ Jesus. The word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Jillian. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in Matthew 5, 43 to 48. You've heard that it was said, you must love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who harass you, so that you will be acting as children of your Father who is in heaven. He makes the sun rise on both the evil and the good, and sends rain on both the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love only those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, just as your Heavenly Father is complete in showing love to everyone, so also you must be complete. The Gospel of the Lord. Please remain standing with me as we pray. Gracious Father, we come before you as people who've been overwhelmed by your love. And we pray that we would continue to glimpse the height and depth and width of your love for us and for all of creation. We pray that your love would overwhelm us once again today, that you would help us to see you, to know you, to be filled with your love, that we might pour it out to others. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. And all God's people said, amen. amen. It's great to see you may be seated this morning. If you're new or newer or visiting this morning, thanks for being here. My name is Jason Jackson. I'm the associate pastor here at New Life Downtown. Our lead pastor, Glenn Packiam, is in England today. He's been over there uh, with his son, Jonas, teaching at the University of Durham, catching a Manchester United soccer game, uh, and doing a bunch of other fun uh, stuff. He uh, sends his wishes to you this morning. Uh, when I was 16 years old, uh, I had one of those like teenage tragic moments where uh, my first real serious girlfriend uh, broke up with me on February 15th. <laughs> yeah, that's right. The day after Valentine's Day, after I bought that Lion King DVD. Um, <laughs> I know. <laughs> and uh, she broke up with me in the cafeteria. Uh, as, you, as you do, uh, and then started dating uh, a senior right after that. Um, so it was, a, it was a really fantastic week. Um, 
It was shortly after that, maybe, you know, sometime in the next couple of weeks, I'm, I'm sitting at a, a basketball game, and this guy who uh, my ex-girlfriend has started dating just comes and sits right in front of me in the bleachers. And like, I'm already starting to get angry just by the proximity of the man. And as he sits there, like one of his buddies comes and sits down, and they just start talking about this new relationship. I'm like right behind them, like, are you kidding me right now? And my friend Ted, I'm sitting with him, and Ted looks over at me, and he just sees me turning red and my fists clenching. And I wasn't a Christian yet at this point, so I thought this is how you solve things. Um, and Ted just looked at me, he's like, hey, man, let's just go. Like, let's leave. So we, you know, we got up, we left, we went to Ted's house. It was like just a couple blocks away from the high school. And I'm venting in his room, like, and saying worse words than that. Um, I'm just, I'm angry, I'm upset, and like, I gotta go to the bathroom. And I, I walk into his bathroom, and there on the wall, and Ted doesn't come from like a super religious family, and there on the wall is a proverb. And it says, Proverbs 29.11, a fool gives full vent to his anger, and a wise man keeps himself quietly under control. <laughs> Like, huh. <laughs> it's the first time that I can actually remember, I think God's trying to tell me something. I wish it was a different verse, like one from Joshua or Judges. Like, that's what I was looking for, like, you know, some violent verse. Uh, instead, I get this. But it's the first moment that I can remember God speaking God trying to get my attention, feeling like this was a word from God for me for this particular moment. Today, we're starting a brand new sermon series called When God Calls. It's a four-week series. We're going to be walking through the book of Jonah together. Jonah is a book that is found in the book of the 12, or what sometimes are called the minor prophets. They're uh, called the minor prophets not because they're not significant, but because they're smaller in size. Uh, so this collection of 12 prophets that have books uh, by their name that are smaller in size that all get collected together, and we're going to be walking through this book. But it's one of those moments we see all throughout the scriptures where we see the God who speaks. That all throughout the scriptures, this is how Yahweh is portrayed. That the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the father of Jesus, is described as the God who speaks. When he's speaking to his people, inviting his people to be with him and to join him in his work. Inviting us to be with him and to join him in his work. And in the Old Testament, we particularly see that God speaks in really kind of unique ways to a group of people called the prophets. And then through these prophets, he speaks to the rest of his people. He speaks to the prophets and through them to the rest of the people. But what we find is we often, when we hear God speak, we don't always like what he has to say. That sometimes when God speaks, his invitation can be difficult. It can be distressing. It can even be a little dangerous. And we're not sure exactly what to do with it in that point. And so we're going to start today by opening up the book of Jonah and kind of looking to see what happens when God speaks to this prophet 
and how he responds and how that might teach us something about our own life and our own relationship with God. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Jonah chapter one. We're gonna spend most of the time like in verses one, two, and three and kind of do this first part here like old-fashioned Bible study sort of uh, kind of approach, just walking through some things because there's a lot happening in these first couple verses that if we miss what's happening, we end up misreading the whole book. We can end up misunderstanding. And this is clear, like when we think about Jonah, most of us think, oh, that's that book that's about the fish, right? Like all of our children's Bibles and all those things, oh yeah, that's the dude that got swallowed. And we think the whole book is about the fish. The fish is mentioned in three verses. That's it. There's a whole lot more in the book. We're not even going to get to the fish today. So Jonah chapter 1, verse 1 says this, the Lord's word or the word of the Lord came to Jonah, Amittai's son. The word of the Lord literally in the, in the original language says the word of the Lord happened to Jonah. It was to him. And we get this sense that immediately from the very opening of this book, that's God's the one who's doing the initiating here. God's speaking. God is kicking this off. He's the one who's initiating. He speaks in such a way that it encounters or happens to Jonah. And we're introduced to this guy, Jonah, whose name in Hebrew is the same word for the word dove. The prophet Hosea describes a dove as simple, heartless, and flighty. That this is what the prophet, the, the, a dove is like. It says this, Hosea 7, 11, Ephraim, or another name for Israel, the northern kingdom, has become like a dove or has become like Jonah. It reads the same way in the language. Silly and without common sense, they call upon Egypt and they go to Assyria. In other words, instead of running to God, they're running to these other nations looking for help. That this is what they're doing. Oh, like, rather than turn to Yahweh, we're in trouble. We're going to go and we're going to call on Egypt. Maybe Egypt can help us against these people. Okay, Egypt's not going to help us. Maybe we'll go to Assyria and we'll call on them. And the, do the dove is flighty, looking around without courage, without hearts, without common sense. Jonah, in many ways, is a representative of all of Israel. And if we're honest, like a representative of all of us at times. That when we read this book, we're called immediately to see ourselves as Jonah. Not the person we want to see ourselves as in the story. We would rather see ourselves as somebody else in books like this. Like, oh yeah, but I identify more with somebody over here. You know, the, the heroes of the stories. Not, you know, these guys. The invitation is for us to see ourselves here. And there's a contrast that's set up right away at the very beginning of the book because we see it says, Jonah, son of Amittai. Amittai's uh, name actually comes from the Hebrew word for faithful. Jonah is intended, called to be a son of faithfulness. It turns out to be rather flighty, rather unfaithful. And there's this contrast between who his dad is, what his lineage is like, and what he actually is like. And so much can be said so many times throughout the, for the people of God throughout the scriptures that we find the people of God being flighty and our father being faithful, the Lord being faithful in the middle of that. This is actually the second mention of Jonah in the Old Testament. 
The first mention of Jonah and his father to connect the two of them, the reason that the book starts out this way is to remind us of what's actually happened earlier, that Jonah, son of Amittai, appears actually in 2 Kings. And whenever we're reading any of the prophets, whether we're reading Amos or Hosea or Jonah or anybody else, there's all these cues that are given at the very beginning of the book to help us anchor what we're hearing the prophets say back in the books of Kings or Chronicles to help us see, okay, this is what's going on in the world. See, in order to understand the prophet's word, we have to understand the prophet's world. If we, if we don't understand the world that the prophet is in and the world that the prophet is speaking into, then we end up misunderstanding what the prophet's actually trying to say. So there's this anchor for us to go back and say, hey, go and read back that story in 2 Kings. And this is what it says. 2 Kings chapter 14 verses 23 to 25. Jeroboam, the son of Israel's king Joash, became king in Samaria. So this is Jeroboam II. Uh, there was an earlier Jeroboam that was king uh, that came to power right after Solomon's son. Uh, so Solomon is king, then his son Rehoboam, and at that time, the nation splits into two, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. There's a first Jeroboam, and now like 150 years later, we get the second Jeroboam, and he becomes king in Samaria, the capital city of the northern kingdom. In the 15th year of Judah's king Amaziah, uh, Jehoash's son, so northern kingdom, Jeroboam, southern kingdom, we have Amaziah. And Jeroboam ruled for 41 years, a long reign. And this is the summary of his rule. He did what was evil in the Lord's eyes. This is every king in the northern kingdom gets this treatment. This is what they did. They did what was evil in the Lord's eyes. He didn't deviate from all the sons or from all the sins that Jeroboam the first, Nabat's son, had caused Israel to commit. So he'd set up these altars, uh, had changed worship. They were worshiping uh, golden calves again, all sorts of things that they weren't supposed to be doing. But then interestingly, it says this. It says, he reestablished Israel's border from Lebo Hamath to the Dead Sea. Like, wait, wait a minute. He did what was evil in the Lord's sight. Oh, yeah, and he expanded the territory. He reigned for a really long time, and it looks like he did a lot of really good things. Right? He expanded the territory. He expanded it all the way back out. He was politically and militarily and uh, successful, and yet... He did what was evil in the Lord's eyes. There's a whole area that he was not leading in. He was leading Israel to continue to commit the sins that they'd always committed in false worship, worship of other gods and all sorts of other things that they continued in. And yet he still had this other success. He established the borders. This was in agreement with the word that the Lord, the God of Israel, spoke through his servant, the prophet Jonah, Amittai's son, who was from Gath Hefer. So time period-wise, Jonah is prophesying in the 8th century, so 700 BC, 700 years before Jesus. He's prophesying during this time that Israel is divided into these two kingdoms, the north and the south. He's from Gath Hefer, which is a town on the eastern edge of one of the tribes called Zebulun. So he's a northern guy. 
He is an Israelite. He's from the northern kingdom. And he's prophesying that his king, his political leader, would restore Israel's borders to the same dimensions they were at the time of Solomon. It's the same language that's being used here, that it's going to get all of it back. All that they've lost, they're going to get back again. And things are going to be awesome like they were in the time of Solomon. This is how it's going to be. And so here we have this sinful king who God blesses. God shows him mercy. God speaks to him through a prophet, and he has some success. And we're going, okay. We see this over and over and over again as we're reading these books of these folks who are doing what is evil in God's eyes, and yet still for some reason God shows mercy in the middle of these situations. But it also tells us something about Jonah. It tells us that Jonah is probably a nationalist, right? He's a northern kingdom guy. He's an Israelite, and he's prophesying about Israel's greatness. We're going to get it all back again. And he may be even employed by the king. Kings at that time had prophets that were employed in their courts, that would prophesy on their behalf. And uh, they didn't say bad things about the king because that didn't go well for their job. They usually got fired or worse in those moments. And what happens is, interestingly, is that Jeroboam II actually does this. He he captures all of this land. What Jonah had prophesied comes to pass. He gets all of this back. He reigns for 41 years. It's like, yes, this is awesome. Look how great this is. But it only happens temporarily. It's just for a moment. In fact, another prophet, Amos, comes on the scene right after Jonah. And Amos prophesies using nearly identical words that all that Jeroboam II has done is going to be undone by an unnamed enemy. That this is actually going to be overturned. He says it this way. He says, indeed, this is Yahweh speaking, God speaking through Amos. Indeed, I will raise up against you a nation, house of Israel. I'm going to raise up against you a nation, says the Lord God of heavenly hosts. And they will oppress you from Labo Hamath to the desert ravine. The word in Hebrew for both the place where it said earlier, the Dead Sea and the desert, the desert Ravine is the Arabah. It's the same word. So all of this place that you said, oh, we're going to expand all our territory. There's going to be an unnamed enemy that's going to come in and is going to oppress you in those very places that you've just reached. And in the very next chapter of 2 Kings, right after we read about Jonah, that enemy gets named. It says this, 2 Kings 15, 29. In the days of Israel's king Pecha, so the very next king, there's a couple of people killing each other before that, but uh, what happens is Assyria's king, Assyria's king Tiglath-Pileser came and captured all of these cities. Jean and Abel-Beth-Maach uh, and Genoach and Kedesh and Hazor. And he also captured Gilead and Galilee and all the land of Naphtali. And he sent the people into exile in Assyria. All of it's going to be undone. In the ninth century, Assyria emerges as the first true empire in the ancient world. The first true empire. And their goal, without question, without apology, without any sort of qualification, was to conquer everybody. <laughs> like, we are going to take over the world. 
this is what we're going to do. And to that end, they developed the world's first professional standing military. Like, you know how we do this? Make professional soldiers. That's what we're going to do. And we're going to go after this. And they took great pride and great joy in brutality in developing the world's most gruesome and feared military tactics. They maimed and decapitated and skinned and burned and impaled and did everything that you can possibly imagine to subjugate people. They were the epitome of cruel and unusual punishment. And then they glorified in it. And some of the remains that we found in, from the Assyrian kings that on the reliefs on the walls in their palaces, they just had picture after picture after picture of their military doing gruesome things to other people. Like they sat in their throne room and just admired all of the brutality that they had, that they had done in the world. So Israel is one of these nations. Assyria terrorizes them. They are Israel's enemy. In fact, it's in 722 that Assyria actually conquers their capital city and exiles their people all over their empire, and those people become what we now call the lost tribes of Israel. The northern kingdom disappears because of Israel's brutality, or because of Assyria's brutality. Assyrians are at this time Israel's greatest, most feared, and most hated enemy. They are the nation that undoes Jonah's prophecy. That's who they are. The very next verse in Jonah says this, Get up and go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their evil has come to my attention. Well, guess where Nineveh is? It's in Assyria. It's in modern-day Iraq, the Tigris River, but at this time, it's one of the largest cities in Assyria. And God is coming to Jonah and speaking to Jonah. He says, hey, Jonah, go to Assyria. Those people that you're deathly afraid of, the people that terrorized your nation, go to those people, your most hated enemy the most gruesome and fearsome people on the planet. Go there. God calls Jonah to the last place he wants to go and to the last people he wants to go to. The closest image that we can get to this is sort of like placing in our own sort of day a little bit, maybe, you know, 100 years ago. Imagine a rabbi being called to Berlin in the early 1940s. Hey, I want you to go to Berlin. I want you to go to Auschwitz. Why don't, why don't you go there? Can you imagine the response? Or imagine a Christian in Nigeria or a Coptic Christian in the Middle East, and the Lord comes to them and says, hey, I, I want you to go to the headquarters of ISIS or the headquarters of Boko Haram. That's where I want you to go. This is the the call that's on Jonah's life at this moment is to go to that place. And then the Lord says, why? He says, because their evil has come up before me. 
Their evil has come up before me. The language there in the original language actually is very similar to the language of what happens when Cain kills Abel. This has come up before the Lord. It's the same thing about the evil that's happening in the world before the flood. It's come up before the Lord. It's the same thing that happens in the descriptions of Sodom and Gomorrah, that their evil has come up before the Lord. That there's, been, there's evil, there's violence, and it raises up to the point where it, it, it grabs God's attention. And then God acts. He comes to Cain and addresses that situation. But in the other ways, he calls Noah. He calls Abraham. When Israel cries out and it comes up before the Lord, he then calls Moses. And so now a serious evil is coming up and God calls Jonah. We're meant to hear all of this background, all of this story, all of these things that are going on. And then in that context, we read the next verse that says, so Jonah got up to flee, to run from the Lord. He went down to Joppa, found a ship headed for Tarshish. He paid the fare, went on board. Literally, he went down on the ship to go with them to Tarshish, away from the Lord. So Nineveh, from where Jonah's at, is like 500 miles to the north and east. Tarshish is 2,500 miles to the west. He's going from Israel to the Strait of Gibraltar, that place where Africa and Europe connect. That's where Tarshish is, is way over the very other edge of the Mediterranean Sea. He's like, I think I'm going to go there. That place sounds rather nice. In fact, other places that we see Tarshish mentioned in the Bible, it's described as an exotic place of great wealth. There's all these, this gold and precious stones. People go there to bring back the luxuries and the pleasures of Tarshish. It's a place of pleasure and ease and comfort and riches it's the place we all want God to call us to, <laughs> right? Nineveh or Tarshish? Tarshish sounds great this time of year. I think I want to go there. Nineveh's probably a little cold. <laughs> so he flees and goes from there, and twice it says he flees from the presence of the Lord. It's the same language again from, with Cain. Cain goes out from the presence of the Lord. And to get there, he has to go down. We have four repetitions of Jonah going down. Verse 3, he went down to Joppa. Verse 3, he went down to the ship. Verse 5, he went down, verse five, he went down into the hold of the ship. Like not just on the ship, but way deep into the ship. Later on in verse 2, we'll see he went down into the underworld. At one point, he is placed in, he's described as being in a deep sleep, which is a play on words. He's like he went down into sleep, the same kind of sleep that we see with Adam before Eve and Abraham before God makes a covenant with him. He's willing to go down, and his descent is into near death. All the way down as he gets thrown overboard and down into the water. And the question, of course, is like, why is he willing to go so far? Like, wh why is he willing to do that? And he actually tells us later on. Jonah chapter 4, Jonah says this. What, we get a whole bunch of other story that happens, but Jonah sees God have mercy on the Ninevites. And Jonah says this, Jonah thought this was utterly wrong, and he became angry. And he prayed to the Lord, come on, Lord, wasn't this 
precisely my point when I went, was back in my own land? This is precisely what I was saying was going to happen. This is why I fled to Tarshish earlier. I know. I know that you're faithful and you're merciful and compassionate and you're very patient and you're full of faithful love and you're willing not to destroy. I know this is you are. Look, you're doing it to the Ninevites, to the Assyrians. And you know what? At this point, Lord, you might as well take my life from me because it's better for me to die than to live. I'd rather be dead than live in a world where you would have mercy on my enemies. Kill me now. I don't want to serve a God who's like this, and I don't want to live in a world like this. This is Jonah's response. See, we think that the book of Jonah is about Jonah's disobedience. That we think the book of Jonah is like, you know, God asked Jonah to do something, Jonah disobeys, then he gets punished, then he repents, and then he obeys, and then everybody lives happily ever after. Yay! We leave out the entire fourth chapter when we tell the story that way, and we miss so many things. See, the problem is not simply Jonah's disobedience. The disobedience is the symptom of a larger problem. The disobedience is a symptom of something else. It's not an obedience problem that Jonah has. It's a theological one. Jonah has a theological problem with God and what it is that God wants to do. See, Jonah is really okay with God being gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love with Israel. He's really okay with God being gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love with him. But surely there's a limit on this. And surely it shouldn't go to those people. See, Jonah disobeys because God actually disturbs him. He disobeys because God shows mercy. And he doesn't show mercy just to the undeserving, but to the least deserving. To those on the very, very, very edge. Jonah wants justice. That's what Jonah wants. And God shows mercy. And because of that, Jonah actually wants a different word from God. He doesn't want the word that he got. He wants a different one. And not only does he want a different word, he actually wants a different God. This is the core of what's going on with Jonah. And I think at times it's the core of what's going on with us. If we think about it, the word of God comes to us in the person of Jesus. That this is what the scriptures tell us, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood in Eugene Peterson's word. In the Hebrews, it says that in the past, God spoke to us through the prophets, but now he has spoken to us through his son. The word became flesh. When God speaks to us through Jesus, through the scriptures, through the Holy Spirit, the word of God comes to us in Jesus. And Jesus often calls us to places that we'd rather not go. Nah, no thanks calls us to places we'd rather not go. There's always that joke kind of in Christian circles, like, don't say you never want to go to this place, because if you say never, then the Lord's going to call you. You there? Maybe that was just Christian schools that made that, that joke. This is my, my ORU experience. But there's oftentimes when we, when we really are listening to the words of Jesus, we're really listening to the Holy Spirit, that we find that the word of God to us can be uncomfortable can feel like unwanted. 
that's, that's not what I was looking for, God. I know the whole fool gives full vent to his anger, but what about the eye for eye, tooth for tooth thing? Like, can I have that word instead? I want a different word. It could be unwelcome to us. Like, I'm not ready for that. I don't, I don't want to talk about that right now. I don't, I don't want to go there. It can be difficult for us to hear. Like, oh, it can feel painful or distressing, even dangerous. I think some of our missionaries maybe know this better than anyone. Of the, the danger that can be involved in saying yes to God's call into certain places. But really at a deep level in Jonah, what we see is that when the word of the Lord comes to us, it exposes our hearts. Exposes what's going on deep inside of us. And Jesus confronts our bad theology, confronts our prejudices, confronts our misaligned ethics, confronts our fears, confronts our politics, confronts our, our finances, confronts the way that we're going about doing relationships, confronts how we're going about doing business, confronts the truth that's in our mouth or not in our mouth, confronts the way that we're living life in this place or in that place, confronts the ways in which we're holding either the Lord or people or the things that God wants to do in our lives, holding those things at bay. The word of the Lord confronts all of those things, calls us to places that we'd rather not go. And that doesn't just mean physical places. Sometimes that may be God calling us to counseling and we don't want to go there. Sometimes it might be God calling us to have a really difficult conversation with somebody and we don't want to go there either. Like, ah, I'd rather just do this, I'd rather just do that. Maybe it's God calling us to a new practice, a new invitation, a new way of being with him. Like, yeah, that's uncomfortable to me. I don't want to do that either. It's not just him calling us to our enemies, but it can be all these places that we're like, ah, that's, I'm not, mm, it's uncomfortable. We confront something in us. And when we find ourselves in that place, like Jonah, we often want a different word. We often want a different Jesus. Like, ah, uh, yeah, something's wrong here. Some, something's off. And we find ourselves wanting a Jesus that's different than the one who's revealed in Scripture. Find ourselves going, ah, just, this, this is uncomfortable for me. I don't know if I agree with this. I'm not sure how I feel about this. That doesn't really align with what I think or what I feel, so... Ah, uh, surely something must be off here. And what happens is, is if we're not really careful that we can end up making God in our own image. And how we know is when we find that when we are thinking about God, talking with God, praying, reading the scriptures, it seems like God likes everybody that we like and hates everybody that we hate, agrees with every thought we have and disagrees with every thought that we don't have and has the same position as us on every single issue and thinks the same thing about our life goals and dreams and uh, this relationship and that, what we're doing here and over there. And it's like God just like agrees. It's like we're just in sync. God just feels the same way about everything that I do. How awesome is God? Right? There's a good, a good sense that 
if we're reading the scripture and we're praying and we're going to church and, and worshiping and we're blocking out everything that might be uncomfortable or hard, like this whole sermon, um, <laughs> and say, ah, no, that can't be God. But maybe we're creating God in our own image that we end up finding that we've created a God who never disagrees with us, who believes the same thing about everything that we do, and every word we hear from him is easy. It's just easy. It's just, ah, so great. It's all inspirational. It's all a pep talk. And there are times that God speaks to us that way. There are times that he speaks words to our heart that comfort us. There are times that he speaks words of encouragement. There are times where he is just holding us in the midst of our brokenness and our despair and our confusion and our doubt. And then there are times that God, like any loving parent, says, we need to talk about this thing because it's killing you. We need to talk about this thing because it's, it's keeping you from being with me and joining with me in my plans and purposes for the world. We need to talk about this because it's not what's best for your soul and for the flourishing of your life. But when we find ourselves in those places where we feel like it's uncomfortable or oh, we're not sure what to do, like we, again, like Jonah, we run. We run to our own Tarshish, our own comfortable place. And then when, that's, when that place gets uncomfortable, then we find the next one. And we, then we run to the next one. And then we run to the next one. And some of that may just be like, ah, I'm, I'm just going to run fully into entertainment. It's kind of lose myself in the next Netflix special and ignore all of these other things that maybe I hear God inviting me into. It's just easier to watch a four-hour Martin Scorsese movie. Like... I'm just going to immerse myself here. Or maybe in places we run to substances and alcohol or drug use. Say, I just, I, no, this is going to be my Tarshish, my comfortable place. And we run to pornography. We run to hooking up with whoever is willing to hook up with us. So I don't want to mess, I don't want to deal with the things that God wants to deal with me about. Instead, I'm going to find a comfortable place, an easy place, a place of pleasure. Or we drown ourselves in work. Or we say, ah, oh, I'm just going to do this with my finances or I'm going to hide out here. We find ways to hide or to ignore, to push away, or even to leave and say, nope. That's uncomfortable. I'm going to just keep moving on to the next book, the next idea, the next thought, the next podcast, the next, until I find someone or something that's saying the thing that I want them to say. And then I'm going to land there because I, I, I don't want to deal with the hard parts of this. It's, it's hard. It's uncomfortable. It's confrontive. It's, ah, uh, it seems to be pushing against me. And, I, and, and surely... That's not what God is like in any way, so it, it must be that I just need to keep going to find something else. Here is the beauty of the book of Jonah. So the book of Jonah, the story of Jonah, and the story of us, the story of our lives, 
is actually ultimately not about how Jonah responds to God. See, the story of our lives and the story of the book of Jonah is ultimately about how God responds to Jonah. Then in the midst of Jonah having this run, he's just like, I'm out of here. It goes. What does God do? He doesn't say, great, done with Jonah. Who's next? Where's the, who's the next prophet up? Right? Call somebody in off the bench. Make a trade. Whatever you got to do. Like, we need, a, we need a, a new Broncos quarterback. Um, let's bring the next person in. God doesn't do that. God shows him mercy. He shows him mercy. The very thing that Jonah is having trouble with, God showing to the Ninevites, God actually shows to Jonah. Over and over throughout the book, we'll see God showing Jonah mercy upon mercy upon mercy. You see, even it says the word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time. Fresh start, another chance. And Jonah obeys, but his problem persists. Right? He's still angry with God. And what does God do when Jonah's angry with him? He keeps coming to him, pursuing him, inviting him, calling him, running to him. He shows mercy on Jonah. He shows mercy on the sailors in the story. He shows mercy on the Ninevites and shows mercy on us. This is who our God is. God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. The God who's coming after us, speaking to us, pursuing us, even we're trying to do everything we possibly can to get away. God doesn't give up. He hasn't given up on you. You may find yourself going for one reason or another. We can all say, I'm running from this for this reason. Maybe a variety of different things. Any number of things that can be causing us to run in various directions, to hide, to leave, to sort of push away. And God just keeps coming. His mercy knows no end. This morning, maybe you've been just running from God himself for a long time. Say, I don't know if I want to have anything to do with God or with Jesus or with church, and I'm really angry about the person who brought me here today (laughs) or why I stumbled into this place. I thought it was just free coffee. Maybe today is the day where you realize that God's mercy is for you. It's for you. God stands ready for you to come to him, to be forgiven of your sins, to be reconciled to God in Jesus, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and to start to be made new. And God's mercy doesn't require that you do work on the front end. Like, oh, I got to fix this, I got to clean this up, and I got to take care of this thing, and well, then once I got that, then I can come to him. No. His mercy is coming after you. It's here today. Maybe you know that there's something that God's been calling you to, something that's hard, something that's difficult, something that's been uncomfortable. And you hear the Spirit whispering to you, saying, come, come, come. The invitation stands. He keeps asking. He keeps inviting. He keeps saying, come. He's still here extending his mercy to you. It's not too late. The time hasn't passed. That conversation that you, that you feel like the Lord wants you to have with somebody, 
It's not too late. The thing, those things that God wants you to pursue for your own health and healing, counseling or anything else that might be, it's not too late. That thing that you've been hiding and nobody knows about and you want to keep hidden, it's not too late to bring it into the light and to see what God can do and to start bringing you health and healing and freedom in that area. It's not too late. God's mercy is here. It keeps coming for us. As you're wrestling with thoughts and, and doubts and confusion and, and wrestling with hard questions, God's not shaken by those things. When we have theological sort of conflict, God keeps coming after us. Keeps coming. His mercies for us. In fact, all of our stories is a story, it's a story of mercy. So the New Testament says all of us have been in that place. All of us have been Jonah. But God, who is rich in mercy, has brought us to life with Christ. God, who is rich in mercy. This is what the book of Jonah is about. Not Jonah's disobedience, but God's mercy. And today, as we come to the table, as we come to this time where we remember that Christ died, gave himself for us, and Christ was risen again, may we taste and see that the Lord is good. May we encounter his mercy in this moment. Let's take a moment of silence before Pastor Evan comes and leads us to the table and ask God to show his mercy to us once again.